You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So I have a short topic that I would like to talk with you about before we open up the discussion for questions. In the Ashtanga Yoga Method, we have as our stated goal to create what is called uh, in Sanskrit, Viveka Kyati, and what is called in English, the ability to discriminate between what is true and what is untrue, or what we could call discriminative discernment. So when you are able to discern, this means you are able to evaluate the facts at hand and figure out what is true and what is untrue. And this is what is stated as the ultimate goal of the Ashtanga Yoga Method. So Patanjali, who's the author of the Yoga Sutras, uh, defines the eight limbs path of Ashtanga Yoga as creating this state of Viveka Kyati in long-term practitioners. So I'd like to go over that one sutra with you and then talk about how that applies to our lives in this modern world. So Patanjali starts off with Yoganga Nushtanad, which is the continual practice or the Anushtana, right? The continual practice of the limbs, the Angas of Ashtanga Yoga. So Yoganga Anushtanad. When you practice the eight limbs, the full eight limbs, not only asana, not only uh, yamas and niyamas, but the full eight limbs, when you're involved in the whole journey, and you continually practice that. Yoganga anushtanad, right? The continual practice. Not I have practiced once, right? Not I will practice one day. Not I'm going to think about doing those other limbs soon, right? But the continual practice of all eight limbs of the Ashtanga path. Yoganga anushtanad, right? Ashtadik syaye burns through impurities, right? Which impurities are we talking about? Well, those very impurities which prevent us from seeing the truth. Um, the impurities that we could say are patterns or what are known in Sanskrit as samskaras, what are obstacles, these are impediments that prevent us from seeing the truth, where we are blocked. We also have obstacles that prevent the free flow of energy, we could say, and the free flow of uh, experience. And these are obstacles that we have, we meet physically. So we also have physical obstacles. There are many obstacles. But our shuddhik is that we are burning through these impurities with the power of the fire of purification. That fire of purification is that fire which we kindle, the spark which we light each time we practice. That spark is lit within us every time we get on the mat and we practice what is called tapas or the generation of internal heat when we sacrifice things along the path. When there is difficulty and we meet that difficulty, not with complaint, but with perseverance. When we decide not to quit, but to stay the course. We burn through impurities with the power of the fire of purification. And the idea is that that spark eventually turns into what Patanjali next calls jnana diptir, right? The lamp of knowledge. So this lamp of knowledge gets lit from within. And this is very uh, 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 akin to a light being turned on in a dark room so that finally we can see what is actually there. So we have the jnana diptir, the lamp of knowledge. And it's said to work something of a purification process uh, in a similar process that by which we remove the impurities in gold or we remove the impurities uh, in the traditional method of making ghee. So the idea is that those impurities are burned away, but what is pure and of the light remains. And this is why we have Viveka Kyati, which is discrimination, because there are, you could say, um, many different types of fire. There is a fire that is indiscriminate. An indiscriminate fire burns everything and will burn um, way too much, potentially creating harm. And when we have an indiscriminate fire, we uh, are not able to temper what is a very intense state with compassion. And we can burn ourselves up or we can even harm others 
in the name or under the banner of righteousness. And this is uh, unfortunately, you know, has happened numerous times throughout the history of human civilization. When we think we are doing good and then we use that as a shield to justify acts of harm. And this is an indiscriminate fire. Additionally, uh, when we have what we could call an indiscriminate fire, we have a fire that is too much stimulated. We could call this in traditional terminology, a fire that has the quality of rajas or the rajastic fire. When we have too much passion, too much energy into the fire of purification, it no longer begins to be the fire of purification. It's just an all-consuming fire. If this happens, usually the students on the path will flame out, stop practicing because they have harmed themselves, usually with injury, or they have harmed another person and created some pain in their lives. And then this derails the practice of the steady removal of impurities and instead creates more impurities that need to be healed and then worked on. We also have what is called the tamasic fire or the fire with the quality of tamas. This is the fire that starts and stops, starts and stops, starts and stops. We start and stop, start and stop over and over again. And eventually, perhaps, we just stop. So sometimes I meet people that have been tamasic in their fire, you could say. They practice a little, and they stop a little. And they practice a little, and they stop a little. Then suddenly, then they don't practice a little anymore. Then they do only other things, which are maybe perhaps more interesting than uh, yoga. So the tamasic fire is the fire that is hard to get started and hard to keep going. It's like trying to light uh, a, a wet piece of wood to make a good fire. It, 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 it may create a lot of smoke, but the fire will be very hard to get until the wood is dried out. So in the same way, the tamasic fire, when it is within, when it is within you, then that tamasic fire is hard to get started. And we all have those qualities, but we have to watch ourselves. So is my fire burning out? You know, have I lost the light a little bit? If I lost my spark of inspiration, what can I do? You know, if you notice that you're in that state of tamas, the best thing to do is what you've all already done now is come to a class where you have a community and you have some energy around you. This can, you can get the spark relit just by being around other people who are inspired. And it is traditionally said that the purpose of the guru is to light the path or to light the, light the spark within you. So the idea is that at some moment that that, that flame is so strong that it can uh, light another person's flame. Very much like the light of a candle, once that flame is well lit, can easily share the fire with another candle. But if the flame is weak, I don't know if you've ever seen a weak candle, you know, or one where the wick is not properly um, you know, uh, installed in the center of the candle at a very small wick, or maybe you got a little too enthusiastic about trimming the wick that came with the instruction manual of the candle, please trim the wick. And you're like, yes, I'm trimming, I'm trimming. And then you have trimmed the wick to such a small, minuscule wick that it cannot properly burn the wax of the candle. And in this case, if that candle, which is not fully illuminated within itself, it's not self-generating, it's not established, we could say, in its own fire, its own jnana diptir, that lamp of knowledge is not self-illuminating. It doesn't have the fuel. It doesn't have the right dynamics to maintain its own light. If you bring another candle close to it and put a wick close to that, what happens? That candle will burn out. That candle will extinguish. You can extinguish that candle. If you try to light other things in that candle, neither the thing that wants that you want to light nor the candle will remain lit. And so this is very important for any of you who are yoga teachers to absolutely recognize when you are reaching the short end of your stick or the short end of your wick. And at that point, you need to go and get, you know, re-inspired. We need to go and be a student again. We need to go and tap into the source, we could say, so that our fire can burn bright enough to be a light to others. Otherwise, it just burns out for everyone. You know, you got the burned out teacher and then you got the burned out student then we got nothing left but donuts, you know? So not like they're bad, but we also want a little practice, right? So we have to be aware. What type of fire are we trying to cultivate? Obviously not. We're not trying to become the tamasic fire. We're trying to temper the rajastic fire. Many people will vacillate between extremes. Oh, I have to give everything I got. I burn and burn and burn. I practice three times a day and they vacillate. Now I quit for a little while. It was too intense. I need to relax, you know, and then they vacillate everything or nothing, everything or nothing. But they never find that sweet spot called the sattvic fire. 
the sattvic fire, the fire of sattvas, the fire of harmony, which is discriminating, that says this and not that, this and not that, this and not that. This power of discrimination is essentially what we're looking for. This is where we see that all of our work leads to wisdom, clear sight, right? Viveka kyati, discriminative discernment, the ability to delineate between what is true and what is untrue. And this, not that, this, not that. We can think about the sattvic fire as understanding the balance between appropriate effort and too much effort, between not trying at all and trying just enough, between finding the way where you can work your body, but not working so much to compromise the body, between being diligent with the mind, but not being mean with yourself. And so we find it's very hard to find that balance, those touch points. It's hard to find that balance because we are not trained in sattva. We're not trained in harmony and peace. We're trained in, you know, too much rajas. We're trained in too much tamas. We're trained in states of decay and states of warfare with ourselves and with others. But we're not trained in how to maintain a peaceful, harmonious balance with ourselves and with others. This is why we come onto the path. So yoganga anushtana, as we continue to practice the eight limbs of yoga, the anushtana, that continual practice, ashtadiksyaye will eventually help us learn how to cultivate the sattvic fire. That sattvic fire will go and seek out the places of weakness, the places of impurity, those places with which we are out of alignment, and then bring those up to the surface, right? And at some moment, jnana uh, diptir, the lamp of knowledge, will be lit within ourselves. And then, viveka kyati, we will have wisdom. We'll be able to delineate what is true and what is untrue. One of the vast... Um, there are many different levels of what is true and what is untrue. In the grand level of yogic path and on the spiritual realization, what we are aiming to distinguish is in the grand cosmic sense, what is material and what is spirit or what we could call what is manifest. What are the, the, the molecules on this planet earth that, that, that make mass and make the illusion of solidified existence. So what we could call prakriti what is manifest and what is unmanifest or what is spirit, purusha. So this on the grand cosmic level is we're trying to figure out what is this and what is that? What is this and what is that? What is eternal and what is only temporary? What is arising and passing? What is in the field which arises and passes? All our thoughts, all our emotions, our bodies, even the planet itself is temporary, arises, passes, has some shape sometimes, some shape another time some forms of landmass sometimes, some other forms of landmass some other times, some qualities at one point during uh, a time and some other qualities, even the four seasons, which we don't have in Florida. Um, but we have some seasons here. We have hot and hotter. <laughs> okay. So, but there's some change anyway. You can see how oh, this flower is blooming. This must be this season, mango season. We also have mango season. That's a fun season. Um, so when we think about this, we can discriminate this or that, this or that. Everything is changing, changing, changing. Or what is not changing? Now, you know, seasons are changing. We are changing moment by moment, day by day. We are changing. Body is changing. Mind is changing. Everything is changing. So what is not changing? Well, everything in Prakriti, by its very nature, which is not denominated or explained as any absolute good or bad, but is merely explained that this nature of Prakriti is changing. Right? Purusha is changeless, unmanifest, eternal, birthless, and deathless. So we have this dichotomy that's set up as the grand sort of test of Viveka Chati. Are we able to discriminate and answer the basic question of who am I? This is the answer to that question. Who am I? Am I, am I Prakriti? You know, am I? Uh, you know, am I defined by my body, my thoughts? You know, uh, where these molecules that define my body have come from? Am I defined by what shape the body is? Am I defined by what experience exists on the planet? What city I find myself in? What nature I find myself subjected to? Am I defined by that? Or am I defined by something else? And if so, what? And that is the teaching of what Patanjali says after years of practice. You should be able to answer that question for yourself. Sure, I can say you are like this, you are like that, you are like this, you are like that. But Patanjali is very clear on saying this is not a path that gives you the answers, but this is a path that gives you the tools so that you can find the answers yourself. And it's very important because in this way, this becomes to be a path of empowerment and agency for all those who walk on the path. 
rather than a path of dominance and subservience where the answers are given. This is how it is and you should accept it. No, it's not like that at all. In fact, the single determining, the single most distinguishing feature of the philosophy of yoga as a spiritual path within um, the, the, the orthodox schools of, of spiritual realization within India is that yoga emphasizes most above all others personal practice. Practice, that truth which you know to experience, which you know and experience to be true, that truth is true. That which you have seen with your power of Viveka Kyati, that you can put your faith in. If you have not experienced it, then what? Well, then again, we go into blind faith. And as soon as we have a, a philosophy built on blind faith, then we have the uh, potentiality of dominance and subservience, and we operate in a hierarchical model. But if every individual on the path is empowered, to experience the truth for themselves, then all must be equal, right? If everyone can experience the same level of truth, then we're all on the path. Some maybe are a little further. Okay, that doesn't make them better. It's non-hierarchical in that way because everyone has the same potential in this, in this framework. On the big broad scope, wonderful. But on the smaller level, we have to begin with where we are. So we can't you know, wake up in the morning and go, who am I, who am I? Who am I? And then depending on how old you are, if you start asking, you know, saying that question first thing in the morning, I'll be like, oh, it's early onset, you know, (laughs) once you reach a certain age, it's not okay to wake up. Who am I? Oh, oh, better get you a neurological checkup right now. Um, like, no, I'm asking spiritual questions. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) So we are spiritual questing needs to begin at a fundamental level that is applicable to the lives we live. So, you know, on some level, we are yearning for that. We are seekers on the path. And on another level, on a very basic level, we need to separate reality from the story we tell around reality. And so often we conflate these two. There's reality, and then there's the story we tell around reality. There are the pure unarguable, incontrovertible facts. And then there's what we make about those facts. There is one vast network of reality. There's only one reality. And then there are many different perspectives of how we interpret that reality. And so on the very first level of Viveka Kyati, we need to discriminate between what is truth and what is what we think about the truth. What is the basic bare bones experience of reality and what is all of the samskaras, the behavioral patterns that we have as a reaction to that experience of reality. What is the bare bones truth of what is as it is? And what have I made of that reality, right? So we could take a simple example of rain. Mm -hmm. You could wake up in the morning and see that it rains. And that is a pure basic fact. Rain is happening. Rain is present. It is raining, period, end of story. And then there's how we react to it. So let's say you're a farmer in California and you see rain. You might think, wonderful, wonderful, fabulous, because there's a drought. So we could say, oh, fantastic. You know, rain, 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 wonderful. You could wake up in Florida on vacation and see rain and think, terrible, terrible, terrible ruin my vacation, rain, rain, rain. I am cursed, I am cursed, I am cursed. Rain follows me everywhere. And then the farmer in California, I am blessed, I am blessed. Look, rain follows me everywhere, right? So there's a reality of rain and there's a story we tell about it. And the story that we tell is totally fungible. It's totally fictitious. It has no meaning. It is only the story that we tell about it. We can draw various conclusions that we can think are absolute truth, but are in actuality merely fictions. We're writing a fiction novel every day with our thoughts. We wake up, rain, terrible, I am cursed. Okay, what character have you, you know, cast yourself out as? And then you wake up, rain, blessed, beautiful. Great, you have a different character, a different role that you want to play. The same thing happens in the practice. You know, here you are, you try to jump through didn't happen, right? That's a reality. I tried, didn't happen. Try to jump through, stub the toe. The toe has been stubbed. Then you could immediately go down into a downward spiral, right? Oh, the toe is stubbed. 
Maybe it'll never get better. I may never walk again after this class. It's a terrible, terrible. I am cursed. I am cursed with the sub toe. Right. Or you might say the alternative, right? The toe has been stubbed. You know, that's okay. I'll try again on the next one. There's certainly more jump throughs to come. Right. <laughs> or look, I stubbed my toe. Now I have a wonderful reason no longer to jump through for this class. <laughs> right? What a blessed toe this is. I will worship this toe for the rest of the class. Oh, fabulous, fabulous. I am blessed, right? Both, all fictions, all our fictions, all our fictions. And as soon as we uh, see this, then we can free ourselves from the bondage of these fictions. Okay, your toe is blessed, your toe is cursed, whatever, no problem, whatever. This is harmless, really, you know? But as soon as we start to think, um, as soon as we start to assign blame, guilt and shame in the story that we tell about our reality, then serious harm and cycles of harm can be created. So the toe, let's take the toe because it's a funny example. Then you start to jump through and you stubbed your toe. Again, simple bare bones reality. It's inarguable. You've stubbed the toe. Right? The toe has been stubbed. Even I have done this so much. So I have broken a nail one time, you know, the nail, you can even break your nail. I have other people that have stubbed their toe on their arms while they've jumped through and have failed to cut their nails and then have sliced the arm. Not off, but enough to bleed. <laughs> I have also done this. And I didn't even realize that until somebody said, you're bleeding, I'm bleeding. Why? You know, I don't understand. Have you cut me? Right? Did I not know this? What happened? And then I jumped through and hit the spot. I've cut myself. It's just slicing every time you jump through. We have to cut the nails. This is also, this is, this is, there's a certain amount of toenails that we need to have in place for a good yoga practice. If we don't cut ourselves, we will destroy our mats. Um, so uh, we could tell the story. I'll stub my toe. Then as soon as we assign guilt, guilt, who's guilty for this act of harm? Then we start looking for blame. I stubbed my toe because the student in front of me was too close. It's your fault. If you hadn't set up so close to me, then I would have jumped through and I would have stubbed my toe. Blame the teacher. If you weren't counting so slowly, then I would jump through at a normal pace. But I'm trying to keep this stupid count. It's your fault. If the stupid practice didn't have so many of these jump throughs, then I wouldn't be so fatigued. I hate this practice. Terrible. Right? So suddenly we start guilt, blame, and shame. We're looking for someone to blame. We're looking for someone to blame. And in that act, we're so far away from Viveka Kyati. So far away from Viveka Kyati. We have no power of discrimination. We've seen the truth, but we've gone on the spin. We're so far away from the pure experience of reality that we're lost, lost, lost. And we can be lost for the whole life, spinning in the world of our thoughts. We can do this in a simple act of stubbing the toe, but it's even more harmful when we do this meaning telling fictitious story creation method around all the actors that are in our lives, the people. We've decided this person took this action. Yes, absolutely. This is true. And then we tell a story, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And very quickly, we have a case. And this case we carry around with us like a briefcase, like we're a lawyer ready to go into court at any moment to, you know, uh, argue and present our case. Right? I'm going to present my case, why this person is bad. I'm ready for it at any moment. And then because we're ready for it, everything this being does gets filed away in that case. And maybe there's the objective truth. Yes, this person did this. Who knows why? You don't know why. But you have decided why this person did this. They set up their mat close to me. <laughs> we've decided we don't like this they're too close now we file it away this person is inconsiderate right <laughs> suddenly this person generates lots of sweats right this person is unclean right this is objective truth some people sweat some people do not sweat you don't know why right who knows why all sorts of things can happen make people sweat right? i also sweat lots right and suddenly we carry this in there unclean inconsiderate then, worse, the person burps. They have burped in the middle of practice, very loud, rude. Okay, now worse than a burp. 
they make a fart, right? Now the person is gross, okay? So we're carrying this briefcase around, and now we're on alert. Anytime this person is nearby, we can expect burps, farts, and sweat. We're ready for it at any time, any time, any time. This poor person, you don't know. Maybe they have some intestinal issue. You don't know. Maybe they... They have been trying to burp for three days and suddenly the practice has freed them. You don't know, but now you're there. Rude, gross, and inconsiderate. And at any time, maybe smelly, right? So you don't know, but that's the story we tell. How do you be around that person when you cast them in this role, right? How do you interact? How do you feel in your body when you're around this person, when you cast them in this set role, when you carry your little briefcase around of evidence of how things are, which is just the fictitious story that we tell. We're not nice, you know, we're mean. We can be a little rude. We can be inconsiderate. We can be that very judgment which we carry around in our briefcase because we are carrying it around. They are not carrying it around. We are the ones carrying around saying, you are this, you know, aggressive, rude, inconsiderate, which we are the ones carrying that. That is our story. It is within us. But it is not reality, purely objective reality. Right? So the path of discriminative discernment, Viveka Kyati, we have to start delineating what is truth, what is untruth, what is true, what is the bare bones reality, and what is the story we tell about reality. Because we don't have control over reality. Reality is. It is what it is. It simply is. What experience is there, is there. And as soon as we are in a war with reality, we begin to say things like, this shouldn't happen, right? This shouldn't be. It is. Now we only have control of how we're going to respond to that, right? Okay, in a perfect world, all the shoulds would win, but they would be at war with each other because what you think shouldn't happen, someone else thinks should happen, you know? And you think this shouldn't happen. Well, that person, they think it should happen. And all the shoulds exist at war with each other. The only thing that is absolute is what is. So this vast field of what is, what we could call the isness of reality, the beingness of the moment, is, what is unarguable. Now, when we start adding our stories to that, now we argue. Now we argue, oh, this is, this is how it is. Oh, this is how I want it to be. This is how it should be. No, no, this is how it is. This is how it should be. This is how I want it to be. And then we make a war over that. So we have to be very conscious of ourselves. We have to be very conscious of ourselves, of every act of violence that we initiate with our own stories. Because if we cannot remove the violence from our own stories, we have no hope of removing the violence from the stories we tell as a community or as a planet. And there's a lot of violence on the planet right now. And a lot of violence within ourselves even. So when we think about that, we wanna think about the path. Make sure our Iveka Kyati stays plugged in <laughs> so we don't lose <laughs> the illumination of the computer. Um, <laughs> We're about to lose power. That's what, in case nobody at home could see that, then it would all be gone. <laughs> uh, so now, this simple path of Viveka Kyati, the, the the reality and the story we tell around it, the isness of the moment versus how we respond to that. There, the only path of freedom it lies in uh, the removal of all of our stories. Uh, in the teaching of the Buddha, we have the words Yata Buddha, which means reality as it is. We have to make peace with reality as it is, which doesn't mean we accept everything, but we must start with the fundamental acknowledgement of this is how it is. You might not like it. You may choose to take action in a particular way, but as long as there is an antagonism between what is, then we cannot act intelligently. As long as we are governed by our own violence, we have already lost our way on the path of yoga. So this is important to see because some people hear this and say, oh, well, wait a minute. If I should just accept what is, then I just need to lie down and let the world dominate me. Oh, no, that's not the teaching at all. The teaching is very clear, is that you yourself can only choose whether or not you will respond with violence in your heart to a circumstance. 
And so we go back to the teaching of the Gita, where we have the warrior prince Arjuna, who's entering the great battle of the Gita. Right? Be a great battle that this is decided. And Arjuna remains balanced and calm, balanced and calm, to the degree with which he says, I do not want to fight my uncles, my family, my childhood friends. Please make me not fight. I wish not to participate in this violence, anything but this violence. But then his dharma, his path, is yet still to fight. However, the path ahead must be filled with clarity rather than unclarity. And the clarity of, you know, the arrow that Arjuna uh, releases is, you know, considered to be an arrow of truth that is able to hit the target with discrimination. So able to hit the target, but is not indiscriminate. And in this way, we have a path that leads to intelligent action without the burden of the karma, right? Without the burden with the action rooted in violence. In other words, the idea of accepting what is doesn't mean that we'd never take action, but it means we're very clear on what the story we tell around reality and what reality actually is. And this is very important because otherwise we can take action and think we're acting for liberation when in fact we're acting for, you know, further harm, further harm. And this happens on a global level. And this happens on an interpersonal level where we think we're going to do someone a favor. And in fact, that favor just creates more conflict, you know, and then there are times when we think we should run away and not stand up for ourselves because we're trying to keep the peace. When in fact, what is the righteous course of action? What is clear in that moment is that we have to stand our ground as Arjuna did in the battle of the Gita. So the power of Viveka Chati gives us the ability to figure out which course of action is the right course of action. So we don't run away from moments when we need to stay strong and we don't stand strong in moments when we should find the peace. Mm -hmm. And it all begins with ourselves. It all begins with ourselves. Yes. So this is what I wanted to talk about for today. And now I wanted to open the forum up for any questions that anyone has here in the group or also at home. You're welcome at home if you want to raise your hand or if you want to type something into the chat, we can do that as well. Just give you a moment. Please feel welcome to raise your hand if you want to ask a question here. Mm -hmm. mm. No, so super good question. So remember that the Tamas and the Rajas is the fire that carries through the entire eight limbs. So if you're having a strong sitting practice, you're cultivating the sattvic fire, which may or may not lead to asanas that are, you know, strong and, and, and physically based or not. And so that's important to recognize that the fire is, is, is inclusive of the entire eight limbs so that it's not only measured by what we do with, on the sticky mat, right? So sometimes we may have a lot of emphasis on the, uh, the, the subject fire within our sitting practice. And then that state of equanimity translates into uh, kind of this absolute non-attachment to the physical. So then we realize, oh, look, before I used to do this lift up, now I do not. We observe, and we just observe, observe. And that is a change. Because perhaps without the sitting practice, if we didn't, if we lost that lift up, then we would go into the narrative of guilt and shame. And look, I used to do this. What's wrong with me? I guess I'm really bad. And get try harder tomorrow and do that whole thing. But with, because the subject fire is cultivated in the sitting practice, which is included in the eight limbs, then when we come into the asana practice, we observe. Just observe. It may come back. It may not come back. And we're okay with that. The fact that we're showing up, that's enough. Now, the, 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 tamasic, the tamasic agni is when we don't have the sitting practice. We don't have the asana practice. Yeah, we only have donuts. Only donuts. No more asanas. No more sitting. We don't do breathing exercises. We think, eh, who cares? Eh, I should go, but eh, let's not. You know, so the tamas isn't that we're dialing down our physical effort? Because if you're, if you're dialing that effort into the subtle body and into the more contemplative states, then at some moment, it's naturally appropriate that the hard physicality of asana lessens. 
And that's, that's a, it's like a, it's like a give and take and totally normal. Um, so, so that's important to evaluate it holistically and understand that the tamas is when, when we're just not doing any form of spiritual practice, when we slide in our, our moral and ethical commitments, you know, when we lapse into, when we lapse into hatred, animosity towards ourselves or towards others, that that's the tamas. We've gone down there. We've gone down that path of decay. Yeah. And then the rajas is when we, we hit it too hard. Sometimes it's too hard. Sometimes, like sometimes, for example, if, um, if we have an injury and we try to force the practice, then it's too much rajas. Sometimes if we, if we have, a, even with sitting, sometimes if we have a lot of intense emotions that come up, sometimes we need to lie down when we, when we do our sitting practice. Sometimes we need to not hold ourselves rigidly to one posture. We need to allow ourselves to move and shift and move and shift and just let that be enough. So when we try too hard, when there's too much of a struggle, and then that struggle begins to dominate the experience of our, of our sadhana, then it's too much rajas. And there might be times when more of the, 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 the last two years that a softer practice was more appropriate. Um, many people, myself included, um, and, uh, and, and, and just where I am in terms of my own practice, I used to consider my asana practice my main sadhana. But I consider my sitting practice my main sadhana now. So I I want to like uh, for myself. I always have as a as a as kind of a benchmark that I want to spend as long sitting as I do an asana. So if I'm going to do a two hour asana practice, I'm going to sit for two hours that day. Uh, I don't always do it uh, either way. Sometimes I end up sitting more than my asana practice, uh, and usually I feel better on that day than when I do more asana than sitting, like a happier human being. Um, the other version, I'm more sore, you know, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a give and take, right? So, so there is a time when life circumstance is difficult. I think everybody last two years was difficult, maybe continuing to be difficult for some people. Um, but when difficulty arises, we have to soften the hard edges of our asana practice um, and, and, and figure out what can support me to, to, to be better in my life. Otherwise, the practice begins to be almost its own form of penance or even a self-inflicted violence. You know, if we're like life is difficult, so much uncertainty, so much uncertainty. Life is so uncertain, 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 so much uncertainty, so much pain, so much suffering, so much unknown okay, that's not the time to be trying to advance your asana practice. That's the time to utilize all the tools of sadhana to keep you centered. Hmm, that's interesting. Maybe you can try to find that in primary series on your own by softening some of the edges around primary series, you know? So there could be, okay, maybe I don't jump back between both sides, you know? Or maybe I uh, walk back and forward. Or maybe I hold the asanas a little bit longer so that I have more time to drop into them. You know, so we can kind of bring that element of the subtle body into primary series and then explore, you know, okay, all these asanas now are very accessible. So how can I, and, and something that I, that I personally do with primary series to sort of open the window into the subtle body is to ask myself this question, what is the minimum amount of movement that I can do to feel the energetics of the posture? So not what is the maximum, what is the minimum I can do? So here is Janushasana A, what's the minimum that I can do to feel the subtle flow of energy within? or even the light muscular activation that would lead me into it rather than let me just go in and take my fair breaths and go out. Cause then it can become mindless. Then we could just start to like be there planning our day, you know, we're in Janusha Sasana and we're like, all right, I'm going to try that new breakfast place later. All right, let me jump back, jump through. Oh, I'll probably be really busy today. Let me try something else. You know, and that, like, you know, so to really think to be, to maintain that kind of contemplative meditative space, sometimes we need to dial the asana down and then it returns. And then you could deepen from there. But so like some, for like just example in Janusha Sasana A, you know, fold forward. Or you can think about, okay, like there's this and what's the minimum amount of movement before I can feel all of the connection points. Then you can just, Feel it, 
Great. Maybe that's it. So you stay there. So I've done some primary series practices where I've really like done what looks like no asanas, what, what I would call like deconstructed asanas. So then we reduce them to their most basic form and then see if the meditative mind can perceive the truth and the reality of that moment. Mm. That's something you could definitely try after you sit a course, you know, because you come back and you're like, mm. it might take like three hours, but uh, you get half primary series. Great. You know? Yeah. Thanks. Sure. Same way, the way you're describing, but it's funny because I practiced in the yin yoga. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. The so yin space. Me, the same way it was feeling because um, I, I, try, I, I enjoy the storytelling so much, mm-hmm. but the yin yoga, when I tried it, and I thought, I'm going to hide it because it's for you. It's funny. I, I, I was like, oh, God, I can't wait until this whole thing is done. I was exhausted from. Who can make something from it? So, I'm always going to be from this. No, it's funny. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's maybe not there for you yet. That's okay. You know, you keep jumping. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. I used to be yoga healthy a lot. Changed so much. What is your question? Ah, no, I was kind of funny understanding why I feel the same way okay. in yoga. Mm. So what's the secret? So when there's a transition from the physical to the spiritual, it's moving from the state of active cultivation of the fire of purification into a deeper uh, what you could say, consciousness. It's as though your brain waves will slow down. And in the transition from asana to meditation, for example, we are moving from the frequency that is thinking, judging, thinking, judging, into a space where we are being and feeling. So there are many different ways to practice a restorative practice or a yin practice. Um, when I teach the yin practice, I mean it to be an extension of the meditative space. I mean it to be a deep and introspective journey. So if there's resistance that arises, it's the same resistance as you would meet in meditation, which means it's a deeper obstacle. It's something that's deep inside the subconscious mind that now starts to bubble up to the surface, which can be exhausting to confront. Sometimes people take a meditation retreat in the style of Vipassana, which is what I've, which I've, what I've been sitting for about 20 years. Um, and some people have the idea that they're going to go to the meditation retreat and everything will be wonderful. We will have so much peace. They treat that. They think they're signing up for a holiday. You know, I'm going to go to a holiday. It's going to be a holiday. They're going to feed me. You know, they're going to take care of me. It'll be a holiday. Then they come and they have a rude awakening. It's not a holiday. This is meditation boot camp. They wake me up four in the morning. I have to wake up. I don't want to wake up. I'm supposed to be on holiday. Then they make me meditate. 4.30 in the morning. I'm sleeping. I have to meditate for two hours. Then they start chanting at me. And then they feed me some food that I don't like. I would like to make an update. So many prunes every morning. <laughs> they feed you a lot of prunes. I don't know. It's very funny. They're good. They're totally good. I, I like I like prunes. I have no problem with prunes. They can be there. I just too many prunes. Um, don't eat too many of them. <laughs> Few prunes. Okay. And then I used it all day. And some people, you can really see that this is a confrontation. They're confronting themselves. It's a difficult course. There's many things that happen. So that confrontation can only happen when the mind drops to this level 
where what we call some very deep samskaras bubble up to the surface. So actually, the fact that you experience that is not a signpost that it's not working, but it's a signpost that it is working for you, but that it is there's some deep stuff in there for you. And this is this is oftentimes what happens when you know the the ten day courses sometimes are truly wonderful and sometimes they're very very difficult, but also wonderful. So what can what I can recommend is that when that state comes up, to not think that it's wrong because now you have a double negative, right? You have the difficulty of what is so it's difficult. This is reality. It's difficult for you. You're sweating, shaking. You know things are coming up. Anger may be present. All this stuff is. This is reality. Then if you start saying, "What is wrong with me? Why can't I relax? This is yin. I should be relaxed. Why is it so difficult for me? I want it to be relaxing. It should be relaxing. What is wrong?" Then we have added negative to what is already difficult. So our work in that moment, maybe that's not the practice for us. That's okay. Maybe we need a shorter practice. Maybe you say, I can't do this for one hour. I can do it for 10 minutes. So you do a smaller chunk. Meditation is hard for people for the same reason. The asana is entertaining. We're here, we're there. As soon as we have fast movement, five breaths, we go here. Five breaths, we go there. Five breaths, we go here. We do that. Something to do. As soon as you just sit there, then it's very confrontational. I just sit there. So the more that the feeling of any yoga asana class is just sitting there, the more confrontational it's going to be to what's in your subconscious mind. However, the moment you can get over that hurdle, there will be another shift in your sadhana. Maybe you can sign up for the 10-day course. Maybe that's the next thing for you. Maybe you can work it out there. I can try that. Good. Thank you. We have two questions from people at home. So let's Dorothy, if you will unmute yourself and then you say your question, I'm going to say it again for everyone who's here. Okay. Um, so my question, but I'd like to back it up if that's okay with an experience that I had today in practice. So I feel like my question is really stupid, although I know, I know there's no stupid questions. I don't know much about the Bhagavad Gita, but I have been so literal thinking that this Arjuna is actually has people to kill, right. but I'm guessing it's stuff in his mind that has to be smashed. So that's my question. Is it like a literal documentation of an actual war or is it just things in his mind? It's both, you know, it's both. So you're wonderful. Just to hear everyone's question. So Dorothy is asking, is Arjuna a real person that's an historical figure that actually has to kill people? Or is he just a mythological person and the battle is in our mind? And the answer is both. Both. It's both, you know? So uh, it's both. And we have to understand that we are at war and we are shooting arrows at all of our friends and families in our mind. And there are some situations where someone's dharma may be to be a soldier. You know, their dharma may be to fight and that is okay, right? And so we can, it's not that, oh, now, um, you know, so, so we understand that, that there is a lesson in, in that, that that's bigger than just the, the metaphor. Uh, and there are different types of fights, you know? So we think uh, sometimes the, the fight can be that our dharma is to be a soldier and to stand up for, you know, what is right. And then sometimes it can be that, the, that our dharma maybe to uh, engage in what feels like a fight with someone, you know, like we may have to go to court, for example. Mm -hmm. So in this way, it's in our mind and it's in our life. But the teaching is the idea that we do not let the seed of violence move into our hearts, even in an act of a fight. One of the hardest things to do, I think, on the whole planet is uh, in, in our whole incarnation is to enter into a grievance, but not let hatred and violence overcome our hearts. Hmm? Good. Thank you, Dorothy. Uh, Rosa, uh, maybe you can unmute yourself. Yes. Um, you said uh, in the beginning uh, of your talk that when you are in a tamasic uh, state that that then you need to get your spark back no and maybe come to a community or something yeah. so my question is what gives you that spark and maybe i couldn't hear the other questions very well from here but 
Uh, I would also ask you about your own practice. If you practice every day, because I used to practice six times a week, um, not the full, not the full um, primary series. I mean, some positions you don't do, but but almost, you know. And and then I found myself very sore all the time. So anyway, I have these two questions for you. <laughs> okay. okay, so Rosa, your two questions are, number one, what do I practice? Because uh, you used to practice a lot and now you're very sore. So you're considering not practicing every day. Okay, <laughs> let's take that one first. I maintain the six day a week practice. All right, I do it. Do I do the intense practice six days a week? No, but I get on my mat six days a week, except for the moon days and the days when I'm having the cycle and that sort of thing, then I don't practice. And I really love the moon days. You practice for a long time and you're like, I love the new moon. I love the full moon. I never cared about the new moon and the full moon before I did Ashtanga yoga. No idea. I don't care. You'd be like, full moon. Who cares? Now I'm like, full moon? When's the moon day? You can plan all of your fun excursions the day before the moon day, you know, the day before the new moon, and you can eat lots of fun things late at night. Right? So it's, it's one day, we go on to dinner late, 8 p.m. <laughs> it's not actually that late. Um, so so uh, I, I absolutely do the six days a week practice. Um, I do every day my sitting practice. The mind <laughs> shall never rest because if you leave the mind free one day, back to its old pattern. So I sit every day, morning and evening, twice a day. And I do my asana practice once a day, six days a week. And I've been doing that for more than 20 years. Do I do the intense practice every day? No. So on the day you're sore, Rosa, you just have to get on your mat. The minimum commitment is sun salutations and standing poses. That's it. Minimum commitment. Then you're finished. Then you feel sore. Oh, I'm so sore. My muscles hurt. I did this leg class yesterday. My thighs hurt. Sun salutation and standing poses. And you can make them as easy as necessary for you. Okay? <laughs> the second question, where does the spark come from? That's a good question, Rosa. Actually, I don't even know if you know how deep that question actually is. So to ask yourself where the spark comes from is to ask yourself, where does Purusha come from? Where does the spirit come from? What is the breath of God? What is the spark of our incarnation? How are we alive, right? So it's to ask that question. So the spark of, of, of the light within us is that same spark of eternality, which is present within the grand perfection of uh, the universe throughout all time. And so the idea is that that spark is our true nature and it is occluded or obscured by our misidentification with the temporary arising and passing of what is and the pattern of the story that we tell about reality. So the, the, the sort of hidden truth of this is that the light never actually goes out, right? The light is never gone, um, but we may lose the light, lost in the darkness for a moment, but the light is never extinguished, we could say. Mm -hmm. Good. There's one more question from everyone at home, and this will give me the last question. Um, and then I know that some of you need the break before we have another class happening for some of you soon so we're going to take one more question oh now she went away oh, oh, I guess no. was. oh you're here oh you're there denny denny is going to ask a question now thank you just a quick one because we've kept you um i would like to i have an established yoga practice but i haven't been doing a sit uh, you know sitting and it is something i'd like to get into um and i wondered if you had just any advice around how you might start Good question. So just for everybody who didn't hear Jenny, she said she has an established yoga practice, but not an established sitting practice. So how can you start? First of all, I really recommend any person who's practicing asana for more than five years. You don't have a sitting practice. I really recommend you start a sitting practice. Now, do you need to make it something that's impossible? Absolutely not. Some people are terrified of sitting practice. I can't sit there for one hour and do what? What, what shall I do for the hour? Uh, what do I do? Sit there? Do I think about my past and my future and plan my day and do visualizations and affirmations? Like, no, 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 that, that's not sitting. That's something else. You can do that too. But the sitting practice is the pure experience of training your mind to observe what is as it is. So I recommend, first of all, to take little instruction. You can't just do it by yourself. If you just sit there, oh, I'm going to start sitting. What are you going to do? You're going to close your eyes? Well, my teacher said is you're going to go 
thinking, 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 that you have no instruction, you have no technique, then you'll close your eyes and mm, it's going to happen. Mm, lunch, mm, lunch, donuts, dessert after lunch. You know, we just sit there, we'll think about this. That's a, that's a pleasant version. The so uh, other thing, if you don't have a technique, you close your eyes, you're going to think about everything that's wrong. You're just going to be bombarded. Close your eyes. This is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is a problem. That is a problem. Just sit there. It just get worse. So number one, you need the technique. If you don't have some instruction, um, I have a lot of guided meditations. You, know, you can find one of those. Start off with something that's like five minutes and you can learn the technique. Um, if you want to sort of like have a, have a, like a sort of intense experience of learning the technique, you can sign up for one of these 10-day courses. But that uh, can be useful to have little practice before. But um, if you're someone likes to jump in the deep end, then you can just go to the 10-day course and you'll learn everything you need to learn. Um, if you're that type of person, you can do that. Um, otherwise, you can start off how I started off sitting before I practiced Vipassana, which is I started practicing um, what is the foundation of Vipassana, which is called Anapanasati, the inflowing, outgoing breath awareness, called in the Tibetan tradition, shamatha, or calm abiding meditation. Bring your attention to the breath. And this helps calm the mind down. It's universal uh, meditation. And the first foundational teaching of the Buddha. Um, and we can start with that. And I recommend everybody to start with five minutes a day. If you are practicing your asana practice, one of the easiest times to introduce that five minutes a day is at the completion of your asana practice. After your final relaxation, you just get up close your eyes like we did today and just sit for five minutes. This helps settle what you've worked in your asana practice and it helps integrate the energetics of kind of what's happened during the asana practice. So this is probably the easiest place for someone who's an established asana practice to start doing that. If you want, if you want to challenge yourself, you could think about first thing in the morning or last thing at night, but then we need to develop a new habit and as soon as we need a new habit, then we have to start with that like heroic effort of now I need to do something new. And then there's all these questions. Do I brush my teeth first or after? You know, do I have coffee before or after? I'm not really sure. Do I talk to my partner before or after? Do I walk the dog? The dog looks like it needs to pee. I should probably walk the dog first. So after I walk the dog and then not have to brush my teeth and then maybe a little coffee. And then, so when do I sit? What's first thing in the morning? Last thing in the night. So I, again, the teeth. So I brush the teeth before or after, you know, and then, well, if it's the last thing in the night, I'm allowed to go to the bathroom after I sit before I go to bed or, so, it, so it's a whole new habit. So there's all these like, things. If you already have an established asana practice, maybe the easiest time is just sit right after the asana practice. Start there and then let it grow. Then you can seek out, you know, some, some instruction. You can, if, if you don't, you don't have the technique, I recommend at least for the first, like a week, get the same meditation and just play that same meditation for a week. So you can kind of get a little bit of a program because if you're just out there on your own, it's just, again, your own thoughts. You don't know what to say. So that's a really, really good place to start. Do that for a while and then think about extending. Um, then you can read some, there, there are some resources about meditation that can really be helpful between the videos and the talks. Um, the meditation book that I recommend uh, for, there's so many meditation books that I could recommend um, depending on where you are in your, in your practice. Um, so there, there, again, there's a vast trove of resources that can support the meditation practice, but it really only makes sense after you have a little bit of foundation, at least a month of at least five minutes of sitting, then you can start to bring in some resources. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode 
with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.